0: You're about to listen to the Complete Developer Podcast. The podcast by coders and for coders about all aspects of life as a developer. I'm Will, the curmudgeonly experienced developer. And I'm beach the optimistic newbie developer. Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast with your host Beard Man and the Boy Wonder.
1: Oh uh, yeah, so if I guess if uh, well the audience can't see me, which is probably good. I have a face for radio anyway, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I um I don't have the long hair and the beard anymore. I donated the uh, hair to Locks of Love. So I you know I, it had been getting on my nerves for the last. Little bit, and I've been like measuring it like three times a week. Going, okay, once <laughs> it gets over ten inches, it's gone. And I was like, "Yeah, give me a buzz cut." And they they go, "What?" I said, "Yeah, like a buzz cut." I, I want to donate the rest of this. I got some rubber bands; you can tie it up in a ponytail and cut it off. And then, of course, I got them to take the beard too, because what they always end up doing is they cut low, and they end up with mutton chops. And you don't want to have like a four-inch-long mutton chops. That's <laughs> that's awesome. You that, should have let them do that. So yeah, that's that's what I did. And you know, um, the main thing I've been dealing with. Uh, here lately is on my side project making an automated process to send out reports um, via email. Well, not really. You know, the other guy was actually building the process that you know builds up the report and sends it out. But I dealt with all the message queue funkiness under the hood there, and so we've been kind of getting that straightened out. And I'd I'd forgotten all this code I wrote it so long ago, and so it's like, oh, I need to do this. Oh wait, it's already in there. And there was a lot of that. So uh, yeah, it's been pretty good. Pretty good week. I'm uh, I'm extremely cold all the time. I don't the, got it. Without the extra hair. Well, I know. I, uh, Thankfully, I, I do still have my back hair. Yeah.
0: I had lunch with uh, with you and he who shall not be named the end of last week. And uh, I drove up and you guys were out walking, uh, which you guys do when you're kind of thinking about a problem or discussing stuff. Waiting on you. So I uh, I drive up and I, I see he who shall not be named and some kid walking. I was like who's he walking with? Is that like one of their new junior devs or something? And then you'll walk up and I was like, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, uh, I've, uh, been on the job hunt still, uh, going to be moving. Uh, actually the day that this publishes, I will be officially moving much closer.
1: Yeah. You'll um, be about an hour away. Uh, about
0: 45 minutes.
1: Okay. That's it's, not too bad.
0: That. And I, uh, had a really cool interview. Um, phone interview for a, a position that they are looking specifically for a junior .NET developer with experience in JavaScript and .js And there's like, I fit the profile of what they're looking for. And uh, the interviewer was saying that my personality seemed to seem like it would fit in with the, the culture. Of course, when, when she asked, what are you really looking for? One of the big things was, I said, one place I really liked interviewing, I really liked the team. I got a chance to meet the entire team in the interview, and I just felt like I could work with these people, and that's that's important to me.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and you know they've got your back. You can learn. You can expand to fit the space that you're in.
0: Exactly. And she's like, they're looking for someone that, they're like you, they want someone that fits into their team, and I think you're going to fit their team. Yeah. So um, Hopefully it'll work. If it does, I'll be moving up to uh, to Kentucky. Ah, so that's a bit of a bummer. That's only about two hours away, so. Yeah. Well, got something really awesome for our final uh, March is for Makers IOTs. Um, so, uh, for all the music. This week for IOTs, I have another. Uh, well, it's another thing I stole from another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is the the Pegasus mission, or uh, as I like to call it, IoT in space, or as they call themselves, IoT from the edge of space. It's basically uh, Microsoft project in a way it's a couple of guys from microsoft
1: you're gonna use microsoft project to get into space <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love that. isn't it funny
0: actually this is this this is not directly related to microsoft but it's a couple of guys that work at microsoft that did this uh they took a weather balloon and uh, attached a raspberry pi some sensors and a camera and uh Basically built streaming analytics and video of the flight of the weather balloon up into the upper atmosphere or inner space, kind of depending on how cool you want to sound. The first Pegasus mission, they had uh, online tracking. They're currently working on the second one, and it's really awesome. You should check it out. I'll put the link in the show notes. But uh, they have uh, an app that's on Android or iOS that uh, the Pegasus mission, you can track the progress. Um, they haven't launched Pegasus two yet. I'm going to say, be on the lookout for a complete developer podcast message from space because they are allowing people to stream messages to come up on the screen of the image of the earth and huh. the curvature. Yeah. it's really cool. We're, we're totally going to get in on that if, uh, if at all possible. So be on the lookout for that. Cause we're pretty shameless. Yes, we are. Let's yes, be we, we are honest here. Uh, the, the, the guys over at the MS Dev Show, they're really cool. They interviewed Matt Long at my, uh, from Microsoft, and uh, he started the project uh, with the first Pegasus mission. And apparently from the initial inception of sending a Raspberry Pi into uh, low Earth orbit uh, via weather balloon <laughs> to the actual doing of it only took about eight months. So this is really cool, and it's like fascinating the stuff they're doing and how you can track that online. But uh, what's even more interesting, in my opinion, is Project Icarus, and this is a few MIT students, Oliver Ye, Justin Lee, and Eric Newton created a project for uh, for one of their classes for less than one hundred fifty dollars to send a weather balloon up to those heights. thats uh, around 98,000 feet or 17 and a half miles up. I it's pretty love. impressive. It's yeah, all really the way up. It is. It's really awesome because they, they they have images. and You can go to the site and you can see images of the curvature of the Earth and, like, the blackness of space and then
1: the earth below it is really awesome. We need to send that to uh, some some people that like to argue with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson then <laughs> about the flat earth. <laughs> well, which I mean that was like that was like said that was such a good troll on oh, their it part. Was. I mean, they, that was they a good to... troll. But, so uh yeah.
0: that said being that uh, you can build this project for less than $150 we here at Complete Developer Podcast, in conjunction with my nieces and uh, my sister, who is a science teacher, will be launching our own weather balloon with a Raspberry Pi and camera into low-Earth orbit this summer. I've How talked- low?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're it's going to be like 400 feet up, guys. No.
0: No, no. Um, if your payload is under four pounds, it is legal to send that up via the FFA- FAA. Really? Yes,
1: because I guess they're basically like, well, how high could you actually get it?
0: Yeah, and
1: or, yeah, let's let's keep that out of commercial flight paths anyway. Oh yeah, no, because you don't want to be the example case on anything. No, they the their website has a
0: whole thing to track your path so that you don't go into restricted airspace. Huh? Oh yeah, there's there's a whole thing on this. We are. You know, we're, we're gonna build this. I've already talked to my sister and we've started looking into it. Like the, the weather balloons that will go up that high to, to get an image of the curvature of the earth are only about $70. Huh. And you can rent the, the helium. Uh, Well, not the helium, helium, rent. You can rent the the canisters. It's not like you're bringing it back. Yeah, well, you can rent the canisters full of helium. You buy the helium and rent the canisters. So uh, more updates are going to come out uh, as we we build this and work on it. And so when I told my sister that this existed, I said, I'd love to do this. Do you think the girls would like it? And she said, I think so, but even if they don't, I want to be involved. Yeah.
1: It's, <laughs> it's nice and random and it's interesting. I mean.
0: Yeah. Uh, so uh, so we're going to work on this. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to get everything together for the summer and find a nice launch window sometime around July because she's going to be coming through here. But uh, just uh, keep listening to the podcast and more updates will come during IoT's As I talk about what we do, Will, you are looking for a project
1: for us to work on with soldering. Here we go. Yeah. I don't know that my soldering skills are up to the whole uh, low Earth orbit thing, but (laughs) uh, we'll... uh... We'll see. You know, it may uh, may disintegrate upon launch. Actually, the the project that they used used
0: all straight from the store parts, no soldering.
1: Oh, that's handy. Yeah,
0: and I figured yeah, we well, would we'll probably add some extra. Take stuff. a look
1: at it. I don't know where we can launch it, but we can figure it out. But oh yeah,
0: no, I mean, well, that then that'll come <laughs> later on. But if you are interested in uh, sponsoring it, helping out, or if you're, uh- or if you just want to bring beer to the launch site, you know, we're yeah. cool with that. Yeah, I mean, um, if you're if you're interested in this, if you're a teacher or anything, uh, email us at neckbeards at complete developer podcast. Leave a comment on in the show notes or send us a DM on Twitter. And yeah, we're looking for more people to help out and get involved. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is going to happen probably, hopefully in July, maybe later, just depending on how long it takes us to get all the the equipment together and get a good launch window. Now for the continuation of last week's episode. Uh, We went a bit over, so we divided it into two episodes and we're going to talk about intermediate knowledge and the advanced knowledge and then we're going to close out with some of the honorable mentions or nice-to-knows. So, your your intermediate knowledge and this is kind of the to get the job knowledge. These are the things that you know you've got the basics down, and this is what you need to have before you start submitting resumes.
1: Yeah, and understanding how MVC works, like the model view controller setup, mm-hmm. that is pretty well common across the web at this point. Also, learn uh, MVVM. It's model yeah. view view model. That will help you quite a bit. Understanding object-oriented programming is another big part of this and being able to clearly express things in terms of objects will help you a lot. I know a lot of people really like functional programming and that's that's the next thing on the list. It's not as widespread yet as it really should be.
0: The reason I put it on the list is it actually was not on any of the, the research I did. I put that on there myself because it is something that's up and coming. You should have... A cursory knowledge.
1: Of. Well, it'll also help your object-oriented programming because yes. a lot of functional concepts have leaked over into the object-oriented space, and you can do things in you know very tightly yes. that other people take a lot of effort to do. Like you know, I took a programming test a few weeks ago. I remember you telling us about it. And you know, it was a it was basically a fizzbuzz type test. Mm-hmm. And so I take this test, and I did one line. And the reason is, is because I was able to use functional programming concepts that have migrated into C Sharp. So it, this will help your OO programming as well. Oh, like I, these, I
0: agree. I mean, everything I've heard about it leads me to believe that. And it's why I why I put it on there, why I am learning some of the functional concepts.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the next thing on the core concepts is is Agile versus Waterfall. And being able to enunciate why bo- both of those are terrible, because we really don't have a good... There's no good way to design software right now. Like we're we're we're, we are still an industry in its infancy, and you need to know why things are laid out the way they are in waterfall as constructed. By the industry versus what was in the actual paper that the dude wrote, which was basically agile. You know, it's really stuff that falls out of the way that organizational design has changed. Like, we think this is about programming. It's not. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you had the whole waterfall thing, which was basically 19th century industrial mindset. I have to plan out a production line because these pieces are big and heavy and they require workers to put in place. We don't have forklifts and hydraulics. And it's painful to move things, whereas agile is the 20th century, you know, build it, learn from it, throw it away mindset, which, by the way, is wasteful. You know, it's also prone to failure in its own special way. So just learn about the two you know, basically, real. You know, get to the point where you realize that both of them are kind of terrible, but they're what we've got, and so you're going to be dealing with one or the other. I don't think Will and I should design our own. Yeah, we, you know, it could be agile, but it's it's free. We call it fragile. <laughs> um, it's you know, it's it's fragile versus water fail.
0: Uh, next is. Know how to maintain a project over time.
1: Yeah, how to do how to do clean refactoring. You know, know what it takes to actually get software out there if you're the maintainer. Yeah. And how to gradually improve things, how to leave things better than you found them.
0: And understand that your choices as a developer affect the extensibility and portability of your code base. Yeah. So what you do originally is going to have long-lasting impact on the code
1: yeah you, you learn this as you go right yeah, you learn about is, the mistakes you made and this is why it's intermediate level learning how to maintain a project over time you know for one thing that that makes you valuable because that gets you that old institutional knowledge and you're kind of caught up in there like you know ivy vines that are growing yeah. in the wall it's <laughs> like the, the wall's going to come down if you pull the ivy off you know you can you can be in that situation and the other thing it will do is developers that are more senior to you will love to throw crap projects at you because they don't want to do them. And some yes. of those senior people have got some pull. They don't want things to land back on their plate. So like if you're trying to edge into a career, this is a way to do it because maintaining old code will get you there. Now, I've, I've made a career out of fixing old bad code. Like I, I have not had a whole lot of projects that have been just brand new out of the box. Of course, if it sits around long enough, you know even, even if you start it brand new, it becomes... Legacy, like all code is legacy when it leaves the door.
0: Yeah, that me I, I can I can see that. Next uh, on our list is unit testing, and the first point under this I have is Will is going to rant here. So
1: yeah, you need to know why it's valuable. Um, I would suggest being very careful about making heavy assertions about how it's absolutely necessary in any project that doesn't have it as crap because you just ruled out 95% of the industry. People write unit tests for things that are really, really painful. Sometimes, you know, half the time the unit test, because it is code, it's also part of the code base and has to be maintained and people are not willing to commit to that at that level. They just want to say, okay, I just, I want to work on this one part. And I don't want to fix all the unit tests that touch it, too. And so I'm not going to exactly rant, but I'm just going to say be cognizant of what reality is versus idealism. Another thing you need to know as an intermediate developer is task and issue tracking. Like, you need to be able to get in and out of a bug you know bug tracking system. You know, JIRA or, um, you know... GitHub
0: issues or
1: issue tracker and bitbucket. Yeah, you need to have a rough idea of how how those things work and how they intersect with agile project planning. You know, just just enough to not be sitting there when they say something where you go, what's that? You don't want to do that.
0: And this is something that you can practice on your personal or side projects. And even when you think it's overkill, it's a good way to gain some practical knowledge and some practice I, using I, it.
1: You know, I, on my stuff that I'm doing for myself, I mean, I've got I've got little lists of bugs mm-hmm. for personal projects. And I do commit messages, too, by the way. Like, you, you want to have the discipline to not only do the bug tracking, but also do the change tracking in such a way that it, it works well. Like, you want to actually be I, a I professional. I do commit
0: messages, though I will admit there have been times I've been so frustrated that my commit message was, it finally, explicitive, works.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I wrote one today that was something to the effect of, the commits will continue until morale improves. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that's going to show up on somebody's, you know, punch list. They're going to be like, "What is this?" Um, and I'm ready for that question whenever I, it comes. I like I like to look at the um, that website that has the, all the list of GitHub commits with profanity in them. Yeah, yes, there's there's quite a few of those in there. They're, they're great. They can be kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, next,
0: speaking of bugs, is debugging.
1: Yeah, actually being able to troubleshoot something. There's a lot of people that can sling code. You know, the hardest problem to solve is one that's already in production or that already exists, um, especially when you don't know what the problem is. I was taught something pretty early on said that, you know, debugging is actually harder than coding. I believe that. Which it is. But there's a corollary to this, and that is, if you write the code as clever as you possibly can, by definition, you can't debug it.
0: Yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah.
1: You've heard it from me. Yeah, it's probably when what you i did. yeah yeah worked on code that was about as clever as I could do, yeah. and I couldn't debug it. You know, eventually I got it, but it was it was one of those you know wanting a time machine to go smack yourself in the face for doing that. You know, what's
0: funny is back when I very first started learning to code in high school. So, we were doing pretty simple stuff. I mean, it was QBasic and Turbo Pascal. I was the person that my friends in the class brought their code to when it didn't work.
1: Yeah, I've been that guy.
0: Learn some debugging tools, kind of to help you step through the code line by line. Watch how the variables change. Another thing is just use simple logging statements. That's something I've used a lot. In front-end JavaScript,
1: yeah, for the- or anything doing console apps yeah. or any of that kind of stuff, like be able to intelligently get a dump of what's going on.
0: Well, something that I I, I like to use is just a simple document dot HTML uh, plus equals It's working here. Yeah, and I'll put I'll usually put a number with that.
1: You know what's actually sad is I do the alert statement. When I'm debugging JavaScript, like if I'm if I'm really up a creek
0: and I can't use, you know, I can't
1: use a debugger or there's something weird going on. And, you know, sometimes it's nice to be able to do an alert and just say, hey, you know, alert this variable and throw it up on screen and not have to put breakpoints and get there, especially when you have a uh, when you get a function that's getting called and you're like, how is what's the entry point for this stupid thing? I can't find it. Yeah. Uh, you, you will be shocked at how often that, that yeah, happens. Yeah, I've, I've
0: done that with alert messages.
1: Yeah. And, you know, understanding, you know, simple uh, logging statements, those kind of things – those will help you a lot. Just in general, just understanding how people log—that's a pretty quick win, honestly. And it will make your programming better because the other thing too is that this changes the way you write code because you're not going to do a whole bunch of stuff like you know 15 operations on one line because now you can't debug it if you actually set a breakpoint. You're not going to find IDEs that do a very good job of handling it in one line. You're going to make mm-hmm. your code simpler. It, it changes the shape of your code. The same thing as unit testing does, by the way. I've, I've had that problem with unit testing where it changed the code and it made it... It changes it more than I would like. Yeah, a little, you know, the last one is project management. Like, you know, The, the whole thing of estimations that kind of builds into project management and being able to mm-hmm. determine things like what is your critical path as you're building something, like what parts are required for other parts and lining those up and doing estimates on those. Because if you have all the pieces and what their predecessors are and how long it takes, there's a line through there where if anything gets disrupted, the the end of the project gets pushed out. Yes. Versus the parts that can kind of float.
0: This is kind of one of those critical job skills that even if you're not managing the project, understanding project management work is good to know because it will endear you to the manager.
1: Well, and that's how you get to be a team lead, which actually um, I saw that on my employment contract the other day when I finally got it that was – that. Um, Now, he who shall not be named is also a lead dev, but I thought that was interesting. And and I do try to focus from a project management standpoint to some degree, Mm -hmm. but that that's new.
0: That's awesome, though. Um, Yeah. Congrats, by the
1: way. Um, There are a few things on advanced knowledge as well that you put here, and I don't
0: When I put this together, these are basically kind of some things to help you stand out from the crowd when applying for jobs.
1: Yeah, and so data structures and algorithm development Like you need to I almost hate to say this, almost hesitate to say it is understanding the big O notation for algorithms, like how fast the growth rate is for execution time, you know, how it scales. I guess the best way I would say this is, you know, get it to where you understand it and then forget the nomenclature. Be able to express it in terms that are more you know visual or more um, spatial mm-hmm. versus oh this you know this thing grows at log in what does that mean okay you know you've got your pointy haired boss over here from Dilbert if you say oh this lo- algorithm grows at log in it's like well what is what does that mean They may go what's a log? are you talking about riding out to the log like you're you, completely you mean confused
0: I that that guys with long beards saw on.
1: Yeah. You know, it's like, does that have something to do with lumberjacks? I don't understand. Is this, is, is this, is this a new JavaScript framework? Yeah. You know, like, so being able to understand it mathematically, never express it that way. Understand it to a level where you can not put it that way. That, that's really helpful for. Advanced stuff, um, understanding some of the higher uh, higher language, <laughs> understanding some of the higher level languages and the way that those things are constructed. So it could also be constructs in your language. For instance, if you're a Python programmer, right, you can do a lot of stuff in loops. They also have a thing called list comprehensions, which is kind of similar to the way Link is in okay. .NET. It's it's more of a functional. I have a list and I want to filter it by this and then I want to map it to this and then I want to... They yeah. have those sort of operations. Understanding those higher level constructs will get you a long, long way.
0: Yeah, it's like the the example that I found was with the array list versus linked list.
1: Like array list from C Sharp? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a visitor that hasn't darkened my doorstep in a long <laughs> time. Uh,
0: so according... Because I haven't used array list, but...
1: You, and you never will. Um, we, we used it at the beginning because we didn't have generics. And we would make wrapper classes around it that basically functioned kind of like generics and you know, made it where we could get typed stuff in and out. That makes sense. And as soon as generics... Like hit the scene and were stable, people were basically... They were killing their array lists with prejudice. I believe
0: that. And all the
1: inherited classes because so, it was so, so painful to what? deal with. And the thing with an array, and you know, before we get you know too far, is, is basically all the elements are laid out yeah. together. They're in memory together. And so when you refer to an element in an array, you're saying, okay, here is the pointer for the start and here's how many elements to jump in their size. Okay. Basically. So it, it's, it's a quick multiplication and it's out there okay. and you're you're at the pointer for that, the beginning of that item. A linked list is not like that. Each item is the item itself and it also has, if it's a single linked or, well, let's say, say it's a double link because you're not going to use a single link more than likely. It's got a pointer to the previous item and a pointer to the next item. Let's say you want to get the fourth item in the list and you're on zero. You got to say, that. okay, what's my next one? What's my next one? Now that's really fast to add items, but it's not a whole lot of fun to try to get to an item because you know, it's jumping and this is way down in the data structure, but that's the way that works. The other fun fact about both of these is what happens when things go wrong. And this is something that you'll, you'll learn through experience linked lists. If you screw up, you'll have a pointer to somewhere that isn't where you thought you were going. Oh. So something got deallocated and the pointer never got changed. Now, this is way down. Like, if you're dealing with, like, C++ type stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, once it's up to the point where you're using a standard library, that's somebody else's problem. And it's probably been fixed by somebody that can scream louder than you can. Yeah, An array... What screws you is is where you think the array is of a certain size and it's shorter. Yeah, I've heard about that. Because then you go out and you jump out here and you, you either get an access violation or if you know if your system's particularly stupid or you're particularly low level, you just get something. It's like, oh, here, give me these four bytes at this position, and I'm going to turn it into, oh, I don't know, maybe it's a pointer for a window handle or something, and I'm going to try to draw to it. Well, it turns out that that thing is actually just some arbitrary number, and here you go. So understanding how the different data structures work and how they scale. See, like,
0: I, I think what you went into more... Of a senior dev explanation of those,
1: yeah, or an old dev,
0: or an old dev, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. what what I was getting at when I wrote this was, and what I, what I gleaned from the sources that I have, which will be in the show notes, but uh, is not so much that level of detail. Though that helps me remember; I'll remember it better now. Yeah, it's the idea that. Arrays are faster for accessing arbitrary elements, but slower for inserting elements
1: into the middle. Well, and they're also faster for accessing arbitrary elements based off of their position.
0: Yeah. And then linked lists, fast for inserting, slower for accessing. Yeah. Just that's that's kind of the level of knowledge that I'm going at. Because these are, even though this is the advanced knowledge, this is still what's well, it's low level. of what you need to know.
1: Yeah, and you also need to know about other data types. Here, yeah. Right? Like, this is an example, but, I mean... You have things like hashed sets yeah. or you have things, uh, you know, like you need to know how like how hashing algorithms work. So, like, mm-hmm. for instance, if I want to find something by its string key versus its position, I take a hash of that string and that hash is the first place I look. But if it doesn't match, there's, you know, that's where you have hash collisions and all that fun stuff and getting into really heavy data structure stuff that's oh, under the hood. From high school. Yeah,
0: That was my favorite stuff. Everybody else loved the graphical stuff, and I loved all, like, the... The actual
1: algorithms and the data. Well, and and let's talk about sorts, right? Because, you know, there's bubble sort versus quick sort versus you have to be able to think your way through some of these optimization problems. And it's not just a thing of this is the tool for the job and it's always the tool for the job because, oh, this is the fastest way to store this. And it's like, well, it's the fastest way to write to it, but not to read from it. And being able to figure out, okay, which one is the system doing and which algorithm is optimized for what.
0: That's kind of where where I'm going with this on the understanding data structures and algorithm development is while you may not need to know the exact details of what it does, understanding the overall concept of how it works and the limitations of it and what to use where is something that when you're a, especially as a junior developer, can help you stand out.
1: Yeah. Well, like for instance, I almost never use arrays. I use lists. A lot, um, because the way that .NET does it, like when it's a small list, it's actually stored differently. When it's then when it's a larger list, they do some weird optimization bits. But because of the the way that I have to deal with apps, most of the time I'm doing a lot of you know cram stuff in here and then pull a chunk out and you're 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 querying it you're not iterating yeah um the only time i really deal with a lot of arrays is like if i'm having to uh read binary from a file or i'm having to you know write to a bitmap so like you have you know bitmaps in memory are stored as you know effectively you know it's a sequence of bytes yeah you know, it's, it's a header and then there's some there's the actual Data well, if you can if you can deal with it with array operators and deal with pointers, you can actually do things faster. So I'll do that on occasion, but for the most part, I don't use arrays because the the higher level language constructs like lists are more in line with what works for me. Now, if I have to optimize something, I'll jump in there and do it, but most of the time, you don't. Most of the time, there's other places that the optimization. And, and
0: more. that's that's part of the thing is knowing when to use what. Yeah. You know when when you need to optimize versus when you can use a higher level function that
1: may. Well, and I'll I'll add something to this is is that you're always optimizing, it's understanding what you're optimizing. Because uh. there's always a trade-off, right? There's the trade-off of how much cost is there to write to this versus how much cost is there to read. You'll see the same thing with databases, right? You make a table that's got a crap ton of indexes. It's really fast to query, but your writes are slow because it has to write to the table and all those indexes. Whereas you can make a transactional table that you're writing to that has no indexes and it's just lightning fast. But when you query it, you're you're going to get burned. Um, it's You'll, you'll have the same sort of optimizations um, in the mix, like if you're trying to uh, uh, balance between memory utilization and speed. So, like, okay, I can store something in a data structure in memory that's very fast to get data out of, but it's going to probably be denormalized or changed in some way that makes it easy to read from. In other words, like, uh, you know, we were talking about uh, dictionaries and hashed sets, right? Like, yeah. I want to look it up by a string key versus its position and, you know, having to iterate through it. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you do there? Well, you're having to keep an index effectively in memory. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Right? So you're writing to more than one place and you've got... More crap. This gets even more fun when you have uh, things like sectors on the hard drive that you have to start thinking about because it writes in certain size blocks or it addresses memory in certain size blocks. Like you don't, you know, every byte isn't individually accessible. It's you know, I'm I'm taking this block of x size and I'm doing something with it. And if there's dead memory in there, I can't do anything about that. Or how it's you know paging or how um, how hard drive sectors are lined up. I mean, there's there's so many little optimization things particularly between reads and writes that you really have to think about or between memory utilization and CPU that balance out. And this is actually going to be a problem in data centers here very soon because what happened for the longest time crap from the beginning of my career is it was faster to use CPU than to use storage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
1: That's, that's the optimization. It's like I can scale out. I can throw more processors at it, but storage is slow. Storage is speeding up. CPU is not going up as fast right what happens when you have two exponential curves and one of them is tapering and the other one's go- still going up eventually they cross and that moment of orthogonality is where optimizations happen and be- get interesting and that yeah, that looks like that's coming for the data center And that may not i mean they may you know things may shift but Like at the moment, at the enterprise level, there's some very interesting things going on in the storage space and in the, you know, the ability to optimize things with memory. The CPU space is not looking as interesting right now. That, that optimization is going to have real world economic consequences. With
0: the CPU space, they're really running to the end of Moore's Law, to be honest. And they're, they're getting down to, you know,
1: well, the other thing is, is there's
0: the electron level
1: yeah they're they're getting everything is getting really small, and so you have a lot of heat problems um you also have a lot of other weird issues like you get small enough and you know trying to do things tightly you have issues with interference you have issues with heat uh you have issues with you know the fact that you're trying to do things at a low voltage so that you're not generating heat mm-hmm. and you have weird signal attenuation things going on you know, you're getting to the point where you're you're screwing around with matter at a level that you can't ever look at and that's a problem and and so you know the cpu uh growth curve has has gone up and the other thing here too is that there's there's the whole thing about points of failure like you can have the fastest cpu in the world but if it overheats and fails and it costs you a billion dollars guess what that's not a good place to be right you'd rather have you know several hundred million raspberry Pis if you can split the load across them because yeah. you can Split the heat load. You can split the the cooling and heating costs, which are in, are very substantial in a server, oh, yeah. in a server farm environment. Like you've got. You, know, you got blowers running, you got all that stuff going you got a lot of things that are generating heat, a lot of things that are pulling power, a lot of things um, you've got battery backups sitting around that you have to worry about catching fire. Mm-hmm. I mean there's there's all this stuff that goes with it and the more you centralize all that stuff, the more likely you are to experience disruptions. and so what's happening in that space is trying to spread things out. And really, that's, you know, that's the same deal that you have with, with a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but that's
0: with the whole multi core thing too.
1: Yeah. It, it is to a point. And you know, the other thing too is you just, you start to run into timing issues mm-hmm. with, with things. It's like, okay, yeah, we can do this process in four seconds. It's like, yeah, we can do it in four seconds. And then we wait 15 seconds for some other piece to come in so that we can proceed. What happens during that time? Well, either the CPU stops running. Or you've got to store what you're doing somewhere, do something else, and then know when to come back to this. So now you got that overhead, you got the extra storage overhead, and you got the extra processing overhead to say, "Okay, I'm ready to do this next piece." And so we're starting to run into economies of scale that are making CPUs even if you sped them up. You know, I predict that growth curve and the growth curve of memory slash storage. Will cross each other at some point here fairly soon, but I don't know when that's going to happen. It's going to be interesting, but yeah. interesting is a uh, is a phrase used in the old Chinese curse. You know, may you live in interesting times. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, get to get back at it. Um, you know, modeling things out, and you know, here's a quote from uh, Jason Rowell. I Roel, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, Um, but you have to take a problem that is too complex to understand in its entirety, extract a common set of elements from it, and represent it in a different way. Yeah. Um, I do this with analogies and toilet humor mostly. Yes, you do. And people remember it. Um, But the ability to abstract is the key, is to be able – if you don't understand the problem or you cannot put the problem in a way that you can explain it to other people, you've got to take that down a level basically so that you can explain it so that you can reason about mm-hmm. it. This is why I talk about putting things in spatial terms in, as far as the algorithm thing is because of, of just this. It's I can say this to somebody and I come across as either a gigantic nerd or a jerk who thinks he's smarter than them. Or I can go, hey, you know, this is going to grow faster than this. And what happens when they really grow and and show it to them spatially and people get that. And, and so being able to put problems in that format and, and break things down to the point where it's something you can solve. Uh, we discussed this on our actually our conflict resolution podcast. Out of all the things here, what did we do? We kept asking why until we had something that we yeah, could control. The five whys, yeah. Right, yeah. It's however many whys it takes.
0: Well, yeah. Five tends to be the general, yeah, the average, and that's why it's called the five whys. But yeah.
1: Yeah. You just keep abstract, you know, like if you can't understand the problem and you can't enunciate the problem, you break it down until you can mm-hmm. so that you can actually deal with it. You don't deal with a swarm of bees by swatting them all at once.
0: And the, the idea is to reduce complex problems in a set of unambiguous procedures. Yeah, Boolean logic here. Taking real-world problems and converting them into a set of true-false statements.
1: Yeah, or you know, almost like logic gates and all that kind of yeah. stuff. I mean, I have friends that are... I wouldn't say they're on the autism Asperger's spectrum, but they're very socially awkward internally. And one thing that the ones that are successful have figured out is there is a certain weird logic to social interactions. And they basically are looking at it like it's a a logic table. If you ever throw them a curveball, you're going to have a bad time. Unless you do it. Unless you're pulling a prank. Yeah. And then it's funny for you, but it's not so hot for them. But, you know, the thing is, is this is how you being able to form a mental model of a real world situation in such a way that you can abstract it into computer terms is the cornerstone of software development. Mm -hmm. Like, if you can't do this, you're you're not going to be able to write a program because you don't have all the data. You don't have you don't have any way to reason about it. I mean, like it's like you're going to attach a debugger to it and you're not going to know if you're wrong.
0: Math can be your friend here. It's a powerful tool, you know, especially when you're explaining.
1: You remember Dr. Wells? We went to school together. I sent him an email after I got out of college because I used a log function and it saved me a bunch of time. And this is the dumbest thing I've probably ever written. But it was it was so profound for me. And then, you know, he was like, well, yeah. Um, And basically what I said was I, I said that, you know, I realized something that math does math is not work. Math gets you out of work.
0: That's what I've always said about calculus and really
1: cl- and, and letting that completely click over and going, okay, I could have, cause I was dealing with like scaling graphs trying to figure out, okay, well, if I do this, then this, if I do this, then this. And it's like, no, if how about log of whatever and there's my scaling factor yeah. over the yeah. data set and just normalize it. And you that know, that's sense. like, that's like three lines of code versus hundreds. Uh huh. And of course, I wrote the hundreds first because I was inexperienced. But, you know, I learned.
0: Yeah, that's how uh, you learn, really. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's like I've always said about calculus. It's calculus is a shortcut for doing really complex algebra.
1: Yeah, it really is.
0: And I, I, I think that the complex algebra does need to be taught first. And it's not just because that's how I learned it. But if you it's like learning vanilla JavaScript before you learn how to use jQuery and other libraries and frameworks having that base.
1: Yeah, it is really helpful. And, you you know, well, I mean, you already talked about how that's that's kind of similar. I mean, it's being able to appreciate the tool chain that you have that saves you time is going to make it where you can actually use it. Yes. And know when not to use
0: it. Next on our list is uh, search engine optimization or SEO.
1: Yeah. And, you know, especially for web devs, like you don't necessarily have to be a guru at this, but you have to know not to do stupid things. Yes. That, that's really what it comes down to. Like make your content discoverable, understand HTTP so that when Google spiders, your website, that it can actually find the content that's on the site. Cause that's sort of important.
0: Uh, understand that. Understand the concept behind permalinks.
1: Yeah. Between not changing your links all the time. I mean, grief. there was I saw a content management system that some, some dude on the internet was writing and somehow I came across this thing. You know, it's one of those deals like where you, you click through YouTube and then you click through three or four other things and then you end up Oh yeah, yeah. I- at somebody's website, right? This guy made a custom content management system. I'm like, Oh, that's neat. You know, that's that's always a fun project, right? And he was doing it in some really obscure, like I wanna say it was it was like using some weird library that wasn't mainstream within the Haskell community, okay? Okay. And I don't even know how I got here, right? But I'm looking at it, and he did his blog. He built his blog in this thing. Cool. I look at it, and I click. I'm clicking around. I'm like, oh, I'll save that for later because I need to go do something else. I come back. The link doesn't work. So I go to the root website. There's the same article I was just looking at. I click. The link is different. He just broke his SEO. Completely. On a content management system. And there's a lot of developers that really don't Realize that a pretty substantial, like some of your most important traffic is bot traffic. Yeah. It's something that is, you know, spidering through your website, looking for links, uh, you know, looking at content, looking at your keywords, doing all that kind of stuff. Um. Making your site where it's mobile friendly, so you don't get penalized for mm-hmm. not being mobile friendly.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, making your site fast. You'd be surprised how many sites are like, oh yeah, they've got all these whiz bang features, but the site loads slow. We ran into this with the CDP website, with a you know, complete developer podcast site. Yeah, we we
0: did because it was something that I didn't realize was was an issue.
1: Yeah, well, and the other thing too is you know we had it cached and we're on fast internet connections, and so yeah. unless you're consciously going, okay, I need to look at this, it, it'll burn you. Something
0: that I've started looking at.
1: Yeah, our page load time was what, like five or six seconds? Mm-hmm. And I mean, now it's. What sub? Yeah, it's sub one second. We watch it. Yeah. But I mean, this is, this is important. This is huge. And there's, there's a lot of factors that, um, affect a site's ranking. I think, uh, Google said they have 250 something. You know, some of those are page load speed. Some of them are keyword density. Some of them are the values of the links coming in. Like if a whole, you know, if some link farm links you, it used to be that you got penalized for that. And then people started buying links for their competitors and, you know, getting them dinged down in search results. So they stopped doing that. But now it's those links don't do anything for you. And knowing the difference, Mm -hmm. you know, still makes a difference because you're going to throw money away. Um, Being able to tie into all the social networking stuff and being able to see how content flows into your system, see how traffic flows in. You know, get get a passing familiarity with Google Analytics. Like be able to at least go in there and go, okay, what percentage of my traffic comes from Facebook Yes. I'm not talking about, you know, setting up campaigns and doing all, all the junk, crazy junk that we're trying to do right now, yeah. being developers pretending to be marketers.
0: Because <laughs> you know.
1: But, like, at least be at the point where you, like, on most of this stuff, if you can at least get to where you're first order ignorant, you're better off than 90% of the population.
0: Yeah, you really
1: are. And so the last thing on, on the list is having a design sense. And that's understanding basic design principles, like understanding, okay, where do I want to use white space? Mm -hmm. Um, How long do I want lines of text to be so that they're actually readable? Like just, there's a book about this, you know, about, UX structure called "Don't Make Me Think." Um, that was that was on the required reading list. at My first job. That was either the first or second book that I had to read while I was there. Send um, me the
0: link for that. I'll add it to our show notes because I didn't know about that. But that's, that's yeah cool. yeah. You know, um, so, some others that I found were um, typography best practices.
1: Yes, you know, like know the difference between serif and sans serif fonts. You know, don't don't use some weird font that's hard to read. It looks pretty. But if somebody's having to spend a whole bunch of effort to try to actually just read what's on your site,
0: they're, gonna clean they're the going
1: to they're not going to understand stuff like colorblindness. Like, don't you know, don't put blue text on the red background. You know, don't like don't do anything that you saw on MySpace <laughs> like that. That seriously, if you saw it on a MySpace page, don't do it. More than likely, it's probably not a good idea.
0: Part, I think part of the reason that Facebook beat out MySpace was because they didn't have a lot of that stuff.
1: Yeah, because it was actually readable. It was accessible to a wider audience. Understand the um, you know Section 508 codes for accessibility. Yeah. Like, how do you structure your links? How do you do things in such a way that people with screen readers can read it? Because those are also the things that your Google bots look at as well. Because that's metadata. Yeah,
0: that's that's gonna that's gonna affect your SEO ranking.
1: Yeah. Um, understand how to use images. Don't drop a three megabyte image on your homepage. Yeah. Ours was one point five. <laughs> uh, that was one of the things we had to optimize yeah, because it was, it we was. did it fairly quick and we you know we set up the site and we got going and then we we kept going and then all of a sudden we realized hey we never really fixed this mm-hmm. and you know I had to turn back around and and, and handle it. And being able to do that, being able to click go, Okay, this image is ridiculous in size or it's you know, its color depth is too much, or it's the wrong kind of image. Like, I want to have transparency and I have, you know, a JPEG. Like, you know, being able to understand that at least to a level that that is workable is is kind of important.
0: Uh, And know some basics of layout principles. Yeah. And this is another one that we, we had issue on our site with was you went to our site in a browser.
1: And it looked great. Yeah. You went to it in mobile. And the thing that we actually wanted you to do, which is listen to the episodes, was the last thing on the page. Yes. And... Yeah, we completely – We thankfully, that showed up in a teardown. Yeah. But, I mean, if it hadn't, we we might still be languishing oh, yeah. on that one.
0: Still, I, I've – Brandy Young, a yeah. big active audience, I still thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was – Not not only the for what we fixed from the teardown, but it put me in the mindset of looking for those kind of things. Yeah. And I've completely restructured the way – like, Will has been telling me that he really likes the way our emails are going out.
1: Yeah, they're getting a lot cleaner, and it's because of that design sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is developers should be able to communicate with designers. Like, you know, we we kind of joke around about them having black turtlenecks and having the square glasses and, you yeah. know, all of them wanting to be Steve Jobs and all that. That's it's a caricaturization, caricaturization that is funny as long as they realize you're not serious. Yes. Um, the instant they think you are, that's not okay. Um, and it's, it's not even just that. The other thing is being able to go, okay, I can do this. Like, there's certain things that designers, and it's more older designers that are more of a problem because younger ones have had to deal with the web. You know, they're digital natives, they're, they're their yeah. entire life. But the older ones don't realize there's things that, yes, I can do this on the web, but it's awful. And yes. it's awful for accessibility and usability and, and all those sort well, of things.
0: In part of the research for this, I found a lot of sites about uh, basic skills for designers.
1: Yeah, um, a good one for that is Smashing Magazine. Yes. Smash, I mean, those guys. Um, yes, Smashing Magazine has some great material. And it's very accessible for developers, too, which helps a lot. So, um, you know, it kind of wrap this up, we've got a few honorable mentions, I guess, or nice-to-knows here. Mm-hmm. Um, having the ability to empathize in communication is Is very helpful because a lot of places are very uncomfortable with the the whole nerd mindset. Like, you do not want to be compared to Sheldon from Big Bang. Like, when you're there, that's... He Who
0: Should Not Be Named posted an interesting article on why geeks hate the Big Bang And I don't
1: like that show for the very same reasons.
0: Which is really funny because I enjoyed the show, but it's because the show
1: is something that... I can use to better communicate with non-geeks. Now I will give it that. Um, the thing I have, the thing I have a lot of problems with on that is how people react. They'll go, "Oh, you're like Sheldon on Big Bang," and I'll go, "Okay, I'm like Sheldon on Big Bang. That's that's interesting. Um, you're like quirky from Life Goes On." <laughs> And, you know, like I'm not saying I'm not making fun of people with Down syndrome here, but why is it acceptable for somebody that's got an obvious, you know, to say, hey, this person has an obvious psychologically manifested problem. Let's make fun of him and use him as a battering ram on this other guy. Why is that okay? And it's not okay for me to say that you remind me of Corky. Because now it's it's not a difference in kind. It's just a difference in scale. Um, so so there's that. But I will tell you that if you're ever compared to Sheldon, that's the point where you sit there and you go, okay, maybe I need to communicate better. Yes. Right? Like that's a tell for you. It's insulting. But, you know, it should click for you. They go, okay, I'm coming across as not empathetic. I'm coming across as self-absorbed and overly um spun-around technological things versus interpersonal reactions. Like, that's a good good one. If you ever hear that, that's what that means. Now, that said, the person that says it to you, they have their own problems.
0: The the ideal, at least in my mind, is to be where people look at you and go, I can see aspects of all of the characters in you, and I can't really place you as one particular one.
1: Yeah. because Well, I mean, you want to be fluid and you don't want to be typecast, but yeah. it's... So there's that. Um, and this this ties right into the whole customer service skills, because either you're directly dealing with customers or you're dealing with somebody that is dealing with a customer. And we've had this discussion with support where I work. They'll get stressed out with customers are just beating them up over something. And you don't want to be, you know, you want to help them and you want to be empathetic, but you also have a development guide. You know, you've got a timeline that you have to adhere to. And so being able to balance those things in a way that makes people not feel like crap or not hate you is sort of important.
0: And we, we've talked about this a little bit in some previous episodes on like interacting with the sales team. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should do an episode on
1: interacting with support. That wouldn't be a bad idea. We, we should do that. Yeah. Another one is is frankly, learn to use Google. I don't Just mean like Google. I don't mean like, okay, I type something in, oh, I didn't find anything. Like, for instance, okay, if you type in my name, William Gant. Okay. There's that dude that got murdered in The Wire. Okay. His search, that's, you know, I can't beat IMDb. You know, so if I'm trying to find out about a William Gantt, I have to do William Gantt in quotes minus The Wire in quotes. Then I get me and some dude that's a mayor in Louisiana. You think that's bad? Oh, yeah, BJ Burns, I, can, I don't even <laughs> want to think about what kind of search results you pull up. I bet you've never looked yourself up in Google Image Search. No, I have not. That's probably just as well. Yeah,
0: um, but uh, we actually do have, now this one's pretty far down the line, but we will be having an episode on the proper uses for Google And how do you use Google to gain the information you need? It's going to be a big one for junior devs because this is something that if you can Google it, it's better to look the information up and then question the information you looked up to a senior dev than to go to the senior dev and have not done anything.
1: Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, is a lot of senior devs are not very good at using Google either because they, they, they got to a point where they were comfortable and then Google came out. Yeah. And they're still comfortable. Yeah, I mean, Crud, I remember using uh, Dogpile, like dogpile.com. You know, it searched all the other search engines back in the day. Uh Like, my formative programming years was using that. Or before that was even, um, was it Yahoo? And there was...
0: Excite.
1: Excite. And then even further back is, like, finding stuff on, like, Gopher and free oh, agent, and all man. the way back, and so these guys that I have been around, Gopher. yeah, these guys that have been around forever. You know, they they don't have a good grasp of Google, so learn Google. Um, another thing is practicing questioning your assumptions. You would be absolutely shocked at how frequently, I say that a lot because everything is shocking. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stupid stuff that goes on that you, when you step back from it, you're like, this is messed up. Um, and that's true of anything, but frequently you'll run into a design discussion or a discussion about how something should work. And then you realize that you've made an assumption about how it works and everybody in the room is making an assumption that isn't correct. And being able to quickly go, okay, I'm in pain here. Why am I in pain? A lot of times, it's because you're doing something dumb, and so being able to get in that head and go, "Okay, step back and, and question your assumption," is is really valuable. And it's a it's not necessarily a design skill, but it's a survival skill.
0: Finally, on our honorable mentions or nice to knows is. Learn a mobile platform, a native yeah. mobile platform.
1: Yeah, be able to write mobile apps or get things working on there. I mean, Crud, just know, being able to get a website to be mobile-friendly is a huge win. Imagine what you can do when you can build apps. So I guess that's, that's about it. So what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? There was a little bit of news this past week. There was the whole NPM thing. There was a small piece of code that basically left padded strings that was in a node module mm-hmm. and uh, was shared. Was used all over the place. It was like in the dependency graph of all these apps. And the package management system, you know, it had been there for a long time. And the guy that wrote it took it down due to a trademark dispute with another company over one of his other packages. If your code is dependent on somebody else's code to be able to run for you to be able to move forward with what you're doing, you need to have a local cache. Okay, the, the point of a package management system is to provide you the packages that you're trying to work with. However, that point is not intended to mean that you just go, oh, it'll always be up there because, OK, your Internet connection may be down. There's all these failure modes that are pretty horrible. And if you'd had a local copy of you know, the other packages you were using in a repository that cached them, you'd be fine, so long as it doesn't get wiped. You know, the package management system should be immutable, m- meaning that you can't unpublish something from it, should be distributed, and should have a failover. Everybody that got burned by that, by what happened with NPM, failed on one of those three points.
0: For me, it's really funny that this came up this week, because just last week, I was up at my grandmother's house, and my grandmother doesn't have internet. So I was up there and trying to work on my personal site, which... Um, yeah,
1: and you were doing some stuff on on my stuff. Yeah, which I was is working I'm on yours. about to go to Hexo. Yeah,
0: and I was using Bootstrap, and because I was just calling it from the CDN, that wasn't working, and when I first loaded up the site to to kind of see if the changes I made were working, everything blew up. Yeah. And it took me probably about twenty minutes to realize, oh right, that's supposed to be calling heck or calling um, bootstrap. And of course I have a, a local version of Bootstrap on my machine, so I just put it in a folder and, you know, had it call that so that I could continue working.
1: Yeah. And IT professionals in general general are very good about thinking about failure modes for the stuff we're building. Mm-hmm. We don't think about failure modes for our own processes. That's a good point. And yeah, that's a good point. You know, and things that can help us with our own processes. That's why I push the whole code generation thing. This is why I push the whole thing of have your own package management system that you're calling and caches stuff in between or have you know, have some way of, of doing that because again, somebody could just yank the package out of the repository and they can do it right before a deployment and all of a sudden you know you're going oh yeah we'll have this out in an hour and the client you know client's happy finally and it's you know last minute and your job is on the line and some dude pulled out this module um enjoy working on the street yeah right like like you need to assume that anything that you're dependent on is run by psychopaths because if you assume that then you'll be protected from it when yeah. they when they do something that absolutely screws you over like you, you don't, you know, you're, you're basically saying I'm going to trust random strangers on the internet with something that could potentially affect my family.
0: Yes, yes, you are.
1: And okay, think about what's on the internet. Just the same, same week, what was on the internet was a Microsoft chatbot, right? AI that's learning from its environment. And what happened? Well, 4chan found out about it, and it didn't take it very long for the bot to start spouting some pretty profoundly disturbing things, especially <laughs> coming from a machine. Okay, those people are out there, and some of them maintain the packages you use.
0: When you're dealing with AI, Skynet is not going to come from some big evil corporation. It's going to come from something like a Twitter chat bot. Yep.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there's going to be you know nukes falling, and from space you'll be able to see it, right? LOL. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's that's how the world's going to end, man. So yeah, that's that's my rant. Uh, just kind of be pay attention to your dependencies. You know, pay attention to your package management system. Pay attention to these kind of things because just because you it makes something easier does not make it safer. Think about your your attack surface area. Think about your failure surface area, and and plan accordingly. If you have a question or comment for us, please email us at neckbeards at com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed under Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up to our email list, be sure and check out the website at www.completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at complete pod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show.